This episode of AD History is brought to you by NordVPN. Have you ever wondered how far back the art of satire originates? Or exactly how we ended up with the concept of the five good emperors? Well, do we have a story for you? This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting TGNReview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I'm joined with my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, what it do, my friend? It is wonderful to see you on this wonderful December day. It's great to see you too. And December is here. 2020 is almost in the history books. Finally, I think that's how a lot of people are probably feeling at the moment. Finally, we can put 2020 in the vault as a year that happened, not a year that is currently happening. And speaking of years that have happened, Paul, we are in theory supposed to be looking at 141 to 150 AD this time around. However, we're we're going back. We're actually going back a few years, at least with my segment, anyway. And that's for a particular reason because of what happened in the last episode, Paul. If you'd like to explain a little bit in more detail to us, yeah, we got a couple of questions about uh, the the previous episode, asking is you know has the format changed? Is it just one segment and then the Patreon submitted question? And it was a, a fair question. It was a good question, but the answer was no. That last time was a one off. We obviously had the wonderful interview with Sam, but we ended up running long. And so what we decided to do was for this episode, pick up where we left off there. There's been no change of format. You can expect it to continue as you have known it. So just an important point to make clear because we were asked about that. It's a fair question and we want to be unequivocal. There's no change. It was a one-off. So I was going to say, Sam was such a trove of information that we just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't close that trove. I guess it's a trove. I don't know. It was such a good source of information. We just had to keep on listening, really, didn't we? It just ran a bit longer than we expected it to. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, he was a wonderful interview, uh, just uh, an incredible cachet of information. And that's the reason we, we brought him on. It was a very serendipitous meeting between he and I. But once it became clear what he was doing, and obviously, as he mentioned in the prior episode, he had been listening since episode one, it just made all the sense in the world. And it was wonderful having it on. We love the interview. And uh, undoubtedly, you'll be hearing from him again at some point, I'd like to think. Definitely. So that is why uh, what I'm covering today doesn't so much relate to this uh, time period, but it kind of does, because what I'm talking about, it, it captures just this whole period of Roman history. And I think it's great. Paul, you said specifically that we have to cover it still, just because it's so fascinating. We couldn't let this one fall to the wayside to talk about it on what we missed. It's just such valuable, interesting stuff to talk about. Even though it's not chronologically appropriate here, we've just got to cover it. It is so revealing because satire, as we know it in modernity, is such a intricate an integral part of life for so many of us in the world. And it says so much about the people and time and, and civilizations that we're covering that 
there was no way that we could let this one get away, just as simply put. And I love that you chose this, and I know you at home or wherever you may be listening to us will see exactly what we mean in just a moment. But before we go any further, let's hear from our sponsor for today's episode, Nord. VPN. Yes, thank you. And thank you to NordVPN for sponsoring today's episode of AD History. The internet can be a pretty odd place at times, and not only could anyone be trying to access your online information, but sometimes part of the World Wide Web are locked out to you simply due to the part of the world you are browsing on, not quite as worldwide as it touts itself to be. A VPN can deal with both these issues, however, and Nord is the best VPN we have ever used here at AD History. And by logging onto our Nord's secure servers with military-grade encryption, your data is protected. And by accessing one of their servers from another part of the world, you can browse the internet as if you were in that part of the world. Nord has a super easy-to-use design. It's simple, clean. You just click where you want to be in the world, and you're browsing as if you were there. And if you were to run into any issue with Nord, they have 24-7 customer support and they'll be able to lend a hand. And Paul, we talked about it last time. You are a big fan of Nord, if I'm correct in saying that. Yeah, I've been using Nord, as I mentioned before, for almost two years. And something, Patrick, that you know that is very much within my natural course of behavior is that Anytime that I'm thinking about acquiring something or if I'm thinking about recommending something, that I'm an absolute enthusiast and fiend for doing research about that thing. We found that out when we were doing all the stuff regarding our recording equipment, yes. as you will call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, Paul knows best. I can't say that, but what I can say is that I'm very, very particular. And so before I acquired Nord, I easily did a week worth of close research to figure out which VPN would work best, which, more importantly, would work best for me, and undeniably, NordVPN met that standard. And for what it's worth over those two years, it has never let me down. Their customer service has been outstanding, and I've barely had to use it because it's worked so incredibly well. I've had tremendous confidence in my ability to browse safely and anonymously, and that there's nobody peering in on what I'm doing. Not that it's particularly interesting, but I'm also very security conscious. And now that they offer on a Nord account use on up to six devices, I've absolutely 100% insisted that all of my immediate family use NordVPN, and they can't say enough about how much they enjoy it. And so while professionally I'm working on a bunch of different content management systems, I'm on the internet all the time, and that is all very important. It's a heck of a lot more important that I can have peace of mind that my family is enjoying the same protection when they're online. And on top of that, there are many wonderful benefits just in terms of casual use. I mean, goodness, there's one thing that I stand upon is that I don't believe anybody should be able to tell me what parts of the internet are accessible to me based on my geography of my IP address. There are a number of documentaries that I've been able to get access to because I was in a different country that made it a heck of a lot easier to access it. And I know this has certainly been the case for you, Patrick. Yeah. So uh, last time I talked about how I was using NordVPN to watch Spitting Image via Brazilian YouTube, which was really super handy. Isn't this, that great? Yeah, it's such good stuff. Uh, this, well, this time around, however, because we're in December, the season of giving, I want to tell you guys what you can enjoy on British internet. Uh, I know Friends is no longer available on American Netflix. 
We still have friends on British Netflix, so if you really want to get your friends fixed, simply use one of Nord's UK-based servers and you can watch net you can watch friends on Netflix as if you were watching it when it was on American Netflix. And I know the office is leaving American Netflix as well, oh which is really sad. And while it isn't on Netflix for us here in the UK, it is on Amazon Prime Video. So once again, hop onto Nord's UK server and you can watch the office as well via Amazon Prime Video. They're just some gifts I want to give to you guys that are available through NordVPN, the gift of British internet. And that is indefinitely a gift to behold. And so NordVPN is offering listeners of AD History an exclusive holiday deal. That deal being 68% off a two-year plan and an additional not one, not two, not three, but four months completely free. This is a special deal just for the holidays and will likely end soon. So you better act fast, guys. And to enjoy the deal, simply go to nordvpn.com slash 80history and use the coupon code 80history which will all be linked in the description. And we'd like to thank NordVPN so much for supporting AD History. And remember that 68% off a two-year plan and an extra four months for free by visiting nordvpn.com slash History and using the code ADHistory. And with their 24-7 customer support and their incredible 30-day money-back guarantee, guys, I'm telling you from the experience, the research fiend himself it is an absolute no-brainer. So be sure to take advantage of that incredible deal and remember that they have their 30-day money-back guarantee. You're not going to do better than this, guys. We're coming from experience. And once again, thank you so much to NordVPN for sponsoring this episode of the AD History Podcast. And with that, let's lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast ground rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foot, you have the floor. So, yes, thank you, Paul. As uh, Paul did mention just then, today we are looking into an ancient part of the world where we haven't really touched upon yet, and that's with, like, creativity, creative writing. Uh, we've talked about writing in the past for, like, the geographies and stuff like that, but here we have writing for purely enjoyment sense, not for educational reasons, and the ancient world was a highly creative place. Think about classic Greek poetry, Greek, uh, Greek theatre, of course, the Romans adored that as well. Yet another way the Romans expressed themselves creatively was, of course, through satire. And perhaps the most well-known satirist to come out of Rome was a man by the name of Juvenal. The only issue, however, is that he died near the start of the previous decade, so this is a while back, so he wasn't actually alive during this time. He may have even died before that, so this is quite out of order, I must admit. But because this was satire and what he talked about covered huge swaths of Rome. We could have talked about this uh, two episodes ago. We could have talked about it two episodes in, in, in the future. It's just, it, it's it's somewhat timeless to this era. So the thing we were first need to ask ourselves is, what exactly was Roman satire like? Um, I guess to us, when we think satire, maybe like a political cartoon like you see in a newspaper or a comedy film with political themes might come to mind. 
and great modern examples of uh, satire have to be the likes of Spitting Image, which was popular in the 80s. It's back now. If we ever needed Spitting Image uh, at another time. Oh, yeah. There's no question about it. It is. It's truly. I love it because they're equal opportunity satirists. They rip everyone to shreds. It is mm-hmm. absolutely hilarious. And And on top of that, there's nothing wrong at laughing at oneself. No, definitely not. No, it's, it's really good stuff, Spitting Image. And which has also just made a comeback is Borat. And I guess Borat isn't, Borat is political, but it's not, it's not, it's, he's not pretending to be a political figure, not in the same way Spitting Image. But Borat very much captures the time. And like Spitting Image, it just felt now is the time for Borat to come back. Paul, are you a fan of Borat? Oh, ab- absolutely. In <laughs> fact, a little bit later on, I actually want to uh, touch on Borat because his form of satire is, is quite unique and I th- it's certainly something worth touching on in a bit. So, yeah, mm. of course, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, Dolly G Show. Mm. I mean, truly amazing stuff. He's, he's incredibly talented. I would say, though, that, that this most recent Borat is certainly quite a bit different than, than the first one we got. Oh, I've actually watched it yet. I'm looking forward to it. I, I've gotten through about maybe a third of it so far, and it, it's very interesting. But mm-hmm. we're not going to so much talk about the, the movie in particular, but Borat as a as a form of satire is definitely something worth touching on a little bit later. Mm, definitely. And so, as I said, that's satire to us, to us uh, modern humans. But Roman satire was a little bit different, and it did primarily take the form of poetry. And Rome will happily admit that all other forms of poetry they inherited from the Greeks. They'll say, that wasn't us, we just stole that from the Greeks. And yeah, Rome loves stealing stuff from our people, using stuff from our people, I ought to say. Cosmopolitan <laughs> Empire, what can we say? Exactly. But Rome would proudly declare that satire was their own creation. They did it. It was a Roman product. And I found a great quote which describes Roman satire. This quote says, it always set itself up as the epic's evil twin. Instead of heroes, noble deeds, and city foundations recounted in elevated language, satire presents a hodgepodge of scumbags, orgies, and the breakdown of urban society, spat out in words as filthy as the vices they describe. That's oh, just a great, a great description of uh, satire. And the first great satirist of Rome was Lucilius. And he was about in the latter half of the second century BC. So not much of his work survives, however. But as he was a citizen of the Roman Republic instead of the empire, it gave him much more freedom of speech. There was no fear of an empire, of an emperor gunning him down. You know, and when I was reading this, it, it was really the first time I had ever asked myself what what was in bounds and out of bounds in Rome regarding freedom of speech. And... I had never really thought about the difference that might have existed between the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating because I decided to look into this. And during the Republic period, there wasn't, as far as I know, based on my research, any sort of formal judicial or any sort of law that was necessarily broken when you were satirizing somebody. But at the same time, you also had to be careful of who you satirize because Hmm. you're not really worrying so much about legal issues, but more along the lines of a personal vendetta. And so I, I found that really interesting. And then when you get to the empire period, everything changes. Yeah. Everything changes. 
I've always got the impression this might be not that this might be me not being educated enough. I always got the impression the Republic was a lot more transparent, for lack of a better term. Like they had two main guys, they had two consorts at the top of. Like there wasn't even one person ruling over because they were so anti-monarchy after the time of the Roman Kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. That and the rule of Augustus really mm-hmm. began instituting the the concept of any sort of legal issues regarding who you make fun of. Uh, he mm-hmm. he had several targets of his own, if I remember correctly. So he he really was one of the main figures that began ushering this in from a legal standpoint during the imperial period of Rome. And so yes, that's yeah. And so while Lucilius did work in the Republic, later satirists like Juvenal, who worked in the Empire, didn't have as much freedom of speech. And this is where we get to our man, Juvenal. And little is known of him other than his writings. It's thought that before writing, he served in the military and even did civil service work under a Mr. Domitian, who you may remember we talked about in the past. Quite unforgettable. Yes. And and if he did work for Domitian, this could possibly, this is my own interpretation, it might explain to us why he had such a jaded view on Rome. He could, he would have seen, for lack of a better term, how the sausage is made. <laughs> that's, that's the mm-hmm. term I want to use. That is the perfect term to use. Uh, and you, you might understand why he was so angry and angsty. And he was in a bit of a rut. And in a rut, he turned to satire. And he was known for his savage sense of humor. A lot of his writing simply comes off as angry now of a little humor. Yeah. And his satire took aim at Rome's noblest citizens, to even though it's of women, Greek migrants, and homosexuals. Everything was, as you said, like people, satirists who take aim at anyone and everyone like Spitting Image. It, it, he was really one of those. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think one of his more infamous targets was one of Claudius's wives mm. that is particularly heinous. And as I love to say, we may be an explicitly rated podcast, but I don't think you nor I have any desire to rehash that particular writing. <laughs> it's no, it's, no, it's no. really it's it's pretty gross. I don't care yeah. who you are. It's nasty stuff. And yeah, through that, like it can be uncomfortable to read a lot of his work now. But this is a different time, and many argue that satire is meant to make you feel uncomfortable. And I think when we feel like the likes of Borat, it does make you feel uncomfortable. So what are Juvenal's satires? Uh, these were written between 100 and 127 AD. So like I said, a bit before the time frame of today's episode, but I'm sure you guys will forgive me. And his satires are now contained in five books, and each book contains 16 satirical poems. They attack the likes of cur- cruelty and the corruption he saw in Roman society. And as I said, these were written in the time of the empire, meaning the powerful could silence you if you were unhappy with what you said about them. And Juvenal had a way of working around this by only criticizing the dead, which was quite a clever thing to do. They can't be angry at you if they're already in dead. And this does include uh, satires about his uh, possible former boss, the mission. And we'll get to that one in a moment because it's one of my favorites of his. These satires include some of the most famous Roman phrases as well, which I found amazing. Um, Stuff we've talked about in the past, we've mentioned bread and circuses when talking about the Roman Colosseum, the reason for its construction. Juvenal, well, we don't know if he created the term, but the the, the earliest written evidence we have of a panem et circus, forgive me if I'm saying that wrong, comes from his writings. And the phrase, who guards the guard, slash who watches the watchman, was also of Juvenal's origin. 
And just to throw it in, Who Watches the Watchers is an excellent episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Just a quick see, aside. <laughs> see, for me, when I hear that term, I think of the uh, comic book Watchmen, which I, I adore that graphic novel. I know there's the book, there, there was the TV series of it recently and the film. Yeah. That's, what, that's one of the big things in that Who Watches the Watchmen. No, the Watchmen are fantastic, but mm. <laughs> that's another conversation and podcast oh, entirely. No, conversation, yes. Um, so what I want to just do now is I've got a couple, I've got three extracts, I've got three bits from his work. I just want to share them with you guys because apologies if I pronounce these sort of wrong. Reading, yeah, I struggle reading old English like Shakespeare, so it, it, it's kind of hard to read this to, 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 for me sometimes. So I'm just going to share some of it and just what I think about it all. I'm sure, Paul, you may have some thoughts on them as well. Of course. And let's begin with Satire 3, and this is his most famous work. It shares the story of a man leaving Rome to live in the country as he is sick of the size of the city, and especially the migrants coming in. Like I said, it can be quite uncomfortable to read at times. Like, immigration, people coming to our country is kind of a big topic at the moment, and here we have someone so against it. And it just shows you, I guess, these topics are always going to be talked about. But this is just a small extract from this satire and it says though i'm disturbed by an old friend departure still i approve his decision to set up home in vacant cume and the vote at least one more citizen to the sibyl it's a gateway to baia a beautiful coast sweetly secluded i prefer Proch's isle to the noisy suburba after all is there anywhere that's so wretched and lonely you'd rather be there than the constant danger of fire of collapsing buildings and all of the thousand perils of barbarous rome with poets reciting all during august so uh, in many of his works juvenile wrote as a character uh, were these characters to mask his real thoughts or were they just fake characters who thoughts he made up? We don't really know yet, but there's references to stuff that's happened in the past there. There's, there's an immediate reference to the fire of Rome. We can see there. It, yeah, would The line, you wouldn't rather be here than the constant danger of fire. Fire was a real danger in Rome, as we've talked about in the past. And here it is being talked about here by someone who was there in barbarous Rome, as he referred to it as. Paul, do you have any thoughts on this uh, This part of the satire? It's interesting because, as you mentioned before, it, it comes off obviously as, as quite embittered to the, mm. to the modern ear and the modern eyes. I'm not sure, and you know, don't take me to court on this, I think one of the forms that was, was accepted in terms of satire often included this concept of writing as a semi-fictitious character. Mm, and this is where I guess you were saying about Borat comes into play. You can kind of get away with stuff under a mask. Yes, but in, in the terms of Borat, which we'll talk more about later, mm. he, he's using a very, very specific form. But I, like mm. I said, I want to talk more about that later because it's, mm -hmm. it's an interesting contrast over time. But no, it comes off as very embittered. As far as I understand, he, he liked to lampoon Rome whenever he generally had the chance. <laughs> this was definitely somebody who, uh, without a doubt, had something of a chip on his shoulder and more than a little bit of rust. Needless to say, he was he was quite salty, if I were to use yeah. the term. Very salty. Yes, very, very salty. And he was also very silly. And Satire <laughs> 4 is perhaps one of his silliest. It's probably my favorite. And this concerns Domitian, who found a huge fish, which is referred to as a turbo in the poem, a turbot, turbo, then the pronunciation in the poem. And he wishes to consume the fish. Yet, yeah, as it's so big, there isn't a big enough pan to fry it in. Uh, so to, to combat this, like not, not only is there not a big enough pan in Domitian's household, a big enough pan just doesn't exist. It's not a possible thing to do. 
but Domitian summons all his men and his council to try and solve this impossible problem. And uh, this extract I have is kind of an abridged version. There were some extra lines, but I just wanted to condense it to get to the bit mm-hmm. that made most sense here. But if you actually read this, and all of these satires are available online, I have no doubts that there'll be a link to where you can read them all in this podcast. Go check them out. Go read them for yourself. They're very good fun. Some of them are massive, so they might take you a while. But uh, this is a, uh, the satire reads... In the days when Rome was that bald Nero, Domitian's slave. <laughs> yeah, first of all, I enjoy his description of Domitian as bald Nero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> when very the lot, Yes. When the last of the Flavians was mangling a dying world, a marvellous hulk of an Adriatic turbot came to light. Yet a dish was lacking large enough for the fish, so the nobles, the emperor hated, were summoned to a council, displaying in their faces the pallor of that vast and terrible friendship. <laughs> I love the term of vast and terrible friendship. Just the term terrible friendship into itself is a great oxymoron. And this is a great example of Juvenal taking aim at someone well and truly dead, as previously mentioned. It also shows us that Rome at the time knew of the corruption going on with their ruling class. They certainly did. Romans were not... They were not stupid. That much is certain. They they were not walking around blind and naive by any means. But what's interesting about this particular poem is that one, referring to Domitian's male pattern baldness, which (laughs) if you go back to Domitian the Despot several episodes back in our first season, it was something that he was incredibly self-conscious about. And in fact, so much so that any time a bust or a statue of him was commissioned, it always was very careful to depict him with a very full head of curls because this this really got to him by all means they talk about displaying in their faces the pallor of the vast and terrible friendship once again does anybody remember domitian dinner parties mm-hmm. case it, in point this part and uh, people are going to be angry as i'm mentioning it again this attempt of trying to make people do the impossible and people beckoning to this madman's will because they're too scared otherwise it reminds me once again of Stalin. As we always come back to Stalin in this podcast and the clapping where people are just too afraid to stop clapping the man. It just reminds you of that sort of scenario again, just 2,000 years earlier. Yeah, you you and I, at some <laughs> point, at some point in the series, and I'd like to think we won't have to wait all the way until the 20th century, <laughs> you and I are going to have some, some fun with our, our shared interest in, in Stalin, to say the least. But yeah, th- for you and I, that would be the natural connection that we yeah. would make first. Yeah, it just that's what comes to me. It's just that classic example of someone so powerful, but also so mad, that people let him get away with this madness. And I really feel that this this poem is the closest we get to what we understand to be satire. I've written here, it's the ancient Roman equivalent of spitting images Margaret Thatcher. It really is that sort of <laughs> ridiculous caricature of a leader. And we have it right here, and I just find that fascinating. And also, the other thing about Domitian was, not only was he dead, but he was basically became in-death persona non grata. They, hmm. just like, say, Caligula, they were very keen to erase their memory of this particular ruler. It was that heinous, even though Domitian was far more effective and ruled far longer. We've seen this. So not only is he dead, but given how unpopular he was, especially among the nobility, whether it be the senatorial class or or the equestrian class, none of them would have had any sort of favor, friendship, 
or sympathy for the dead Domitian. So he was a he was an easy and accessible target at this point. Yes, yeah, so a nice low hanging fruit target by now. So maybe it wasn't as biting satire as we might think. But this uh, <laughs> this next uh, segment I want to share with you guys from Satire fourteen, and this one's kind of a change of pace. It's simply called bad parenting and it covers exactly that the various forms of bad parenting in juvenile saw i just thought this is such an odd thing to write about but juvenile was if anything a bit odd and here's just a small extract i have and it says if the old man ruins himself gambling his heir will steal a child plays too his little cup armed with the same dice nor can his relatives expect much from some young man if taught by his wastrel's father's long practice gluttony he learnt how to peel truffles marinade mushrooms and drown fig peckers beficios in the right manner and this shows us just juvenile wasn't interested in just taking aim at the roman empire and the emperor specifically but he would put the more mundane things in life like parenthood and this uh, extract here it shows us that he would take aim at any kind of parent he wasn't just angry at the posh parent he was angry at like the lower class parent he was taking turn his nose up at downtrodden gamblers and turning his nose up at gluttons everyone was his target and in these six lines or so he basically rips the shit out of everyone we can beep that out <laughs> if we need to <laughs> No, he definitely does. And, you know, this is not, this is something that today that we can most certainly take a common cause with and have a common experience with. Because think about how many wonderful comedians that have come and gone over the years that have just generated so much wonderful material based on, I wouldn't necessarily call it observational humor because Juvenile's not exactly like Jerry Seinfeld in the second century. No, no. But the idea of just frying everyday life and, and the various foibles and shortcomings of the society in which Juvenile lived, it tells, us, it tells us a fair amount about the man, but it also tells us in its own way a fair amount about the Roman people in that place and that time, which is truly invaluable stuff. And it's one of the reasons I was so excited to do this topic today. And it shows, like, what I want to say is why are these satires important to us? Well, because satire is so of the moment. You wouldn't watch an old episode of Have I Got News For You or something like that because it's all about the now. But we can read these satires. Granted, me and you, Paul, have a knowledge of the history that was going on at the time, so we can enjoy them from that <laughs> standpoint. But yes. why are these important to have? Why is it important to know about Roman satire? And they give us a unique look into the life of Rome in that time in history. It's it, it's a first-hand account of Rome. And normally these sort of first-hand accounts came from quite lofty, educated places, like historians who more often than not were good pals with the emperor, that sort of thing. And this is, we get to look at Rome in a different light entirely. We see, I guess, I guess the phrase seedy underbelly comes to mind when you read this sort of impression of Rome. And it yes. shows us, it shows the time it shows us the timeless quality that satire has. Me and you, Paul, can sit here chuckling at these lines written almost two thousand years ago. And people have always loved poking fun out of their topical surroundings. And it shows us that was the case even in the majesty of ancient Rome. People were still happy to prod at it. And whether that be prod at the big picture stuff like making fun of Rome itself, making fun of the Empire, or it was just a bit of observational comedy like 
looking at how rubbish all the other parents are. You know, people love judging other people's parenting on the internet, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. And even predating the internet, my goodness. <laughs> even predating the internet. Um, Paul, I'm sure you have a lot of questions to ask me about that. and a lot of things you want to talk about, so please uh, let, let me hear them. Brace yourself. <laughs> so my first saw the name, and I had been familiar with his name prior. I think I came across him at some point in undergrad, though I didn't mm. ask the question at the time, and I didn't follow up on it until now. I look at a possible etymological connection, and dun, dun, you, dun. and Mr. Name Explain, <laughs> this is your thing. And I'm curious, is there any etymological connection between juvenile the satirist and what today is called sophomoric or juvenile humor? I'm glad you mentioned that, Paul, and I think it is just a coincidence because, of course, that link came to my head as well when I did research for this episode. That yeah, I thought, oh gosh, that sounds awfully similar to juvenile, juvenile. Is there a link to it? And I don't think there is. Um, the term juvenile, I'm just looking at here, it comes from Latin terms meaning things like young man and one in the flower of his age. It doesn't reference this word coming from the writer himself. There's a term for that sort of adjective. I've done a whole video about it. Things like Orwellian and Dickensian. I think they're called proper noun adjectives, something like that. And it would be great if juvenile was an adjective like that, but I don't think it is. But there might be some sort of link between the two. We just aren't aware of perhaps juvenile was a nickname he used. I said, we don't know much about him other than his name being written down. Juvenile could have just been a nickname he used that was inspired by the Latin Uvernius. I think that's how I'm pronouncing it here. I'm curious, do scholars honestly believe this may be a nom de plume for him? Oh, that, that's just my hypothesis. I'm just saying that. Oh, okay, I was curious yeah, yeah. about that. I didn't know if that, that was his, his given proper name. No, no, no. That's just my hypothesis. That could have gotcha. been a name he, gotcha. he used. We, uh, we we don't know. Short answer, I don't think there was a link. It would be great if there was. But annoyingly, what I've discovered about etymology, if it sounds really cool, and this is history as well, if it sounds like a really cool story, it probably isn't real. <laughs> it, this is an unfortunate truth. And one thing is undeniable. We live in a very special age of cynicism, but let's put it this way. Apparently, cynicism is nothing unique to us looking at juveniles writing. My God, how much more cynical can he possibly be? Hmm. Another thing I was curious about is when I was doing more research into Roman satire, it, it seemed like it was actually, by the time of juvenile, pretty regimented that there were some very specific lines in which you had to adapt your satire and uh, like specifically like a, a certain meter the, the mm. first thing that came to mind of course would be haiku where if you're mm. you, if you're using the j proper japanese it works and it works very well in japanese just how the language is structured where in terms of syllables it's always five seven five and i'm curious if you could go into a bit more detail about this very specific pre-prescribed form that roman satire was supposed to take so uh can i go into detail about this i can tell you the form juvenile and the likes of lucilius use was called dactyle hexameter what dactyle hexameter is however probably can't give you a better like uh give you more information i can tell you that's what it was said so this isn't my strong suit the uh form and structural approach that's for sure i probably didn't read them in that manner but that's what it is that's what um my research has informed me that's the format a satire was written in 
you and I have talked before uh, in in this program and, and between you and I when we're no longer behind the mic about how a lot of people's works, whether it be artists like, say, painters or writers or whatever the case may be, where they're extremely important and well-known to us now, but in their lifetime, they were virtually unknown and unimportant. And I'm curious when it comes to Juvenile, do you know how popular, well-known, or how he was received for his work in his time? Or was this something that really was more of a, a posthumous appreciation for him? I'm pretty sure he was actually known of quite well in his time. He wasn't a Van Gogh who, you know, went his whole life struggling and then died and everyone loved him. From what I remember researching, I've got some uh, articles here about Juvenal. And from what I know, he was somewhat popular at his time. Although, interestingly enough, this is quite a weird thing. And this is going, so he actually had a bit of a resurgence, but not with us. In the Middle Ages, um, Middle Age writers or medieval writers came across his works and they were really fascinated by him at that time. Sort of like they were used in schools at the time in medieval times, which is just very fascinating. Something fascinating I found out. So he was popular at his time, but he had a bit of a resurgence in medieval times as well. Here's another thing that I'm curious about is when you're, when you're a satirist, whomever your target may be. And we were talking a little bit earlier about, well, freedom of speech was obviously, on a, from a legal perspective, far more constricting during the days of the Roman Empire that in the Roman Republic, it was less a legal issue and more about personal vendettas. Don't piss off the wrong person that is powerful enough and uh, vindictive enough to to come and uh, hunt you down, if you get what I'm saying. <laughs> And I'm curious, did he ever experience any consequences? Did he ever step on any toes that, that led to, to him somehow receiving a very undesirable recourse for his work? I'm pretty sure at some point he was exiled. <laughs> God, it, it's interesting. <laughs> we think today to ourselves that, well, it's better than being put in prison. It's better than being executed and well yeah because you're not going to die and in theory you have freedom of movement and to some extent able to live your life but have you ever just stopped and thought about where you live especially if it's you're native to that country and for whatever reason you did something and they literally kicked you out indefinitely just how painful that experience would be and and how bitter the taste would be thinking that you may never return to your home again. It's a very interesting form of punishment. And I know in this case, there, there are some times when somebody would get exiled and they would die in exile. Hmm. Or there'd be somebody who was exiled and there would be some sort of change in regime or power and they're allowed back again. But think about that just in a modern perspective. I mean, yeah, in the modern world, I'm sure we could make ourselves comfortable outside of our home, but your home is still your home, Patrick. Imagine if you were kicked out of the United Kingdom and never allowed to return. I'm sure you would find a way to have a happy and, and largely productive life. But think about how bitter that would be. Just my thinking about it now, it, it's, it's really an 
it's a really awful prospect that I don't think many people give enough thought to. I'm curious, what, have you have you ever considered that possibility, especially in the ancient world when you don't really have to go that far beyond the borders of whatever political power you live within to literally be in an entire other world? No, that's quite right, Paul. Um, I hadn't ever really put much thought into it, but it's not. it definitely isn't the nicest thing to have happened to you. You can't just say exile and sort of don't give it much more thought, but it would be a pretty cool, uh, pretty unpleasant thing. If I was kicked out of the UK and sort of I didn't know when exactly I could come back, that would that would suck. Um, and in regards to juvenile, uh, we, we believe, it's not 100% confirmed, some sources say yes, some sources say no, we believe he was exiled to Egypt. And Egypt's pretty darn different to Rome, that's for sure. So yeah, he was sent there and it it, it it wouldn't have been nice especially in the ancient world it's not like you had a phone you couldn't like zoom call someone to have a catch up with them if if you were out of the country you were out of their life more or less yeah i mean you're you're, you're totally severed from the world you know and the and and you know, most likely the people you care about assuming they can come with you and you'd imagine they would i mean mm. as far as getting exiled to egypt is concerned at that point in time you know landing in say someplace like alexandria would not be the worst of all fates because <laughs> these are you know it's basically one of the great capitals of what the romans would consider the east for them but it's still not your home yeah and you can't uh, that, be home and and in that place in that time, I have to imagine that was a very bitter pill. So yeah, and and you asked, what did he receive any punishment for being a satirist? Yeah, we 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 have evidence and theories that he was in fact exiled. So yeah, I say that's pretty brutal. I would say like uh, yeah, I say that's pretty serious consequence. Not a good thing to have. Ah uh, yeah, and this episode of the Eighty History Podcast is brought to you by. Verner's Ginger Ale, <laughs> a Michigan original. Cheers, guys. So something that's really big here is, I, you know, we, we really took notice of the fact that for the most part, he was very careful for the most part to largely satirize the dead. And I'd like to think to one or extent or another that that's probably not the worst idea in the world. I mean, it certainly is a safer target. But this is what I found interesting. Someone that I think I may have mentioned before is an excellent historian and documentarian. He's a former head of BBC History. His name is Lawrence Reese. Some of mm -hmm. you may be familiar with him. Uh, most of you, I would say, would probably know him from his multi-part uh, documentary, Auschwitz. I know it was on Netflix for a long time, mm. but he did a lot of really other interesting stuff, especially around the Second World War. Specifically, some of his documentaries were Nazis, uh, A Warning from History, World War II Behind Closed Doors, and most not his most recent book, but the one before that, The Dark Charisma of Adolf Hitler. Lawrence Reese, in his time, based on his age and his interests, met a ton of former Nazis that were just kind of retiring when he was getting into the business and like in the 70s, right? So with all of these documentaries, he got to talk to a ton of these people, including just regular Germans who like teenagers, kids, or even adults in that time. And something that he noticed that I thought was really fascinating, and we'll get to why this is important in a moment, there was an interesting safety valve when it came to Nazi Germany and criticizing the government. This is a brilliant on, on Lawrence Reese's part. In, in his words, you could criticize 
the the local Nazi leaders like Gauleiters or other folks of that nature. But of course, you couldn't in any way impugn Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer. And so the way they would get around this, and this is fascinating, you'll see why this is relevant in a moment. Hmm. What they would do is they would say, these local Nazis, they're all yeah, incompetent and crooked. If only the Fuhrer knew, <laughs> he would set things right. And that term, if only the Fuhrer knew, was essentially a safety valve for those to criticize the government within certain boundaries that could get on the local guys, never the Fuhrer. But in, and in a way, it allowed them to criticize their, their local government and at the same time venerate Hitler. So it was this really interesting cultural idiosyncrasy that even in a totalitarian state that they can kind of stay out of trouble. But I can give you a more more modern example of this that I think was extremely telling. Some of you may be familiar with it, something I've watched from time to time, is a YouTube channel called China Uncensored. Yes, we talked about China Uncensored in the past. They've done a lot of traveling to areas that are around China, but they can't go into mainland China because China Uncensored is a satirical show that essentially talks about mainland China news and uh, is highly critical of the Chinese Communist Party who's, who runs mainland China. And there are many reasons for that, but it's not important. So the last time they were in Hong Kong, which was probably a year and a half ago, and they can't go back now based on what's happened recently. Mm. They were going around Hong Kong, and they were trying to find mainland Chinese tourists that they wanted to talk to, and they would ask them what they thought about the Hong Kong protests that had been going on consistently until when the CCP passed the national security laws that have really clamped down on all of this. Well, when they found these mainland Chinese tourists and they had them on camera, so, I mean, you're really exposed. And mainland China is uh, it's a totalitarian state. So you always have to be careful of what you say because you can get into trouble. But we, we know this. This is not, this is hardly controversial in that respect. So they would ask these people what they thought about the protests that were going on and, and how the Hong Kongers would, were acting. And they had this phrase that kept coming up, and obviously it was translated. Most of them did not speak English, obviously. And the term they would use was, basically they would say, I'm uncertain, or they would say, uh, I'm, I'm unfamiliar, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. that when they were literally had it right in their face being asked point blank, that the way they would get around it so they don't get into any personal trouble was they would say, I'm unsure or I'm unfamiliar. And it's the same kind of idea in action as if only the Fuhrer knew. So that way they you know, potentially can't jeopardize their, their own freedom and, and their own lives and the people around them. And in this case, I, I look at juveniles' approach and... The one thing that is interesting, and this is true of both the Roman imperial period as well as the Republic period, there's one thing that they did share that you could never touch, and that is you could not satirize or in any way make fun of the gods. Mm. 
because, of course, within the Roman religion, these gods were active participants that would enact vengeance in, in as much as they can be benevolent. So you never did anything that could potentially anger them, which I think is fascinating. But outside of that, it's interesting when, when things were much more tight, how even a satirist like Juvenal also found these safety valves that can help him kind of skirt and, and circumvent far more trouble as opposed to if he had gone after living figures, people that were in power or people that were somehow powerful through their own personal means. And I, when I look at this, I say to myself, that that is the exact same example in antiquity as the two examples that I mentioned to you from the 20th and now 21st century. And I find that fascinating, that, you that these people find a way around it so that they, uh, they don't get in trouble themselves. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, Patrick. I think it just shows sort of like a sheer human determination. We will always find a way, regardless, regardless of who is in charge, we will always find a way for satire to have freedom of speech, I guess. It might not be perfect. It might not be the freedom of speech people like me and you, Paul, are allowed to have at all times, so yeah. I, I guess. But people will find tactics. They'll find ways to... To find ways to get around it, to circumvent issues, to go just to speak their mind. That's one of the that's one of the main human necessities. People want to be able to speak their mind. People don't want their freedom of speech uh, questioned and uh, belittled. And people figure out how to do that when they aren't supposed to. But I find the if only the fewer knew uh, thing fascinating. Paul, thank you for sharing it. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's interesting to know that Hitler could even make satire into an ego kick for himself from what i understand it just yeah. it was an organic outgrowth of the society and the and the very draconian strictures that it was based upon and mm. especially someone like yourself who i know you're not a professional linguist but you most definitely are professional and a keen observer and i thought to myself when this came around Patrick will appreciate this in a way that I think very few other people will appreciate it. Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm already thinking about how I can make a video out of this phrase. It's not exactly a name, but it's kind of a phrase. I'm always like, hmm, could I do something with that? But no, <laughs> YouTube will probably get demonetized anyway, so I probably won't bother with it. <laughs> when it affects your livelihood, mm. uh, naturally that affects creative choices, which is so deeply unfortunate. And we're not going to go down that route. But I knew you would appreciate it in, in a mm. way that so few others do because it, it's it's a really unique and fascinating adaptation. No, it is. Thank you very much for sharing, Paul. Um, I, I think it was absolutely great. And you just before we wrap up talking about Juvenal, you seemed quite eager to talk about Borat again. Would you like to uh, share some light on this interest you have? This is interesting. I'm not going to pretend to be some great encyclopedic connoisseur of various classical forms of, of satire and entertainment because I'm not. Patrick, are you familiar with the YouTube channel Wisecrack? Yeah, I know the channel, yeah. They do like video essays. A lot of it often has to do with philosophy and relating it to modern entertainment and arts and popular culture, which is really fascinating stuff because they do a fantastic job of that. Very well done. And they were talking about Borat. And this is interesting because it's just another, another form of how satire works sometimes. And in this case, the thing that I found was so fascinating is that Sasha Baron Cohen actually 
studied at, I forget which school in, in Paris. He was taught from some great master that, that worked there about being a clown. Mm. And so when we think about clowns today, Patrick, we usually think of something roughly akin to Ronald McDonald. Yeah, like big frizzy hair, big nose. I guess Pennywise, but not as scary. Oh, God, or maybe Pat equally oh, scary. <laughs> getting that out of my head. But um, yeah, the classic I'm not clown. somebody who's even scared of clowns. It's just like, ugh. Yeah. It's not as bad as, say, like Chucky or something, but yeah. leave that for another day. Anyway, so apparently the Ronald McDonald type, the one that you kind of see at the circus, is something called a red-nosed clown. We get the idea of what they do. We know mm. that that act. Slapstick. In many ways. But yeah. what Sasha Baron Cohen learned was something called a white-nosed clown. Hmm. And from what I understand, it, it in many ways harkens back to the idea of the jester or the fool that we, we would think about in royal courts, you know, meant to entertain. The interesting part about the white-nosed clown that makes him so makes it such a different thing is the white-nosed clown is not necessarily all made up and whatnot. They are inherently, by design, naive. I thought that word was going to come up. I was going to talk about naivety. Yeah, yeah, carry on. And so when you saw the initial Borat movie, and this is also true of his bits in the Ali G show and whatnot, what he would do in his naivety, and not necessarily being poorly intentioned or something like that, but clearly a fish out of water at the very least, because he's from quote-unquote Kazakhstan, Greatest <laughs> country in the world. All other countries are run by little, by little girls. girls. Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan, <laughs> number not one potassium. Let's not anger our hugely, <laughs> our huge uh, Kazakhstan demographic now. All other countries have inferior potassium. <laughs> anyway, point being, so it comes out of naivety, and in that naivety invariably when it's done in a, in a very uh, well-portrayed way, as, as Borat obviously is, in his naivety, he basically raises a mirror to the society or subjects that he's interacting with in their naivety. And a lot of this, I would have to imagine, you know, because Borat is best known for his lampooning in both Britain early on, and then, of course, in these United States. They were always trying to obscure what they were really doing and just kind of basically, on false pretenses, bringing in these really big figures to interview. And we, we know the idea, right? Mm. And then through his naivety and, you know, just this fall worldview that for him was not in any way controversial or any way amore, those he would interact with would basically have the mirror put up to them. So in the case of the first movie, and Borat being that white-nosed clown, he essentially raised a mirror in 2006 or 2007, whenever it came out, to American society at that particular point in time. And, you know, for all that it's worth, really quite fascinating, very different form of satire than what we see with Juvenile. And if I were to say anything about satire, especially when we go back to the idea of what does this say about Roman society at the time in which Juvenal was writing it, we can look into all sorts of various forms of scholarship that make up history and, and of course, our tapestry of world history as the AD History Podcast. In some ways, I don't know that there is a more invaluable insight than 
somebody who is raising the mirror up at themselves and their society and, and seeing it through that lens that it really tells you a great deal that that very other few forms of of comedy or any sort of criticism possibly could and i think for all that it's worth patrick that was the biggest reason i was so excited to do this today because we finally had a chance to look at rome in in a way that even though their satire is not necessarily completely comports to our modern satire, it still tells us a great deal about what was on the minds of Romans, what they were thinking about, what was important to them, what they detested, how they felt about their society, and their place within it. And I do hope that, again, we're able to come across a figure like Juvenile later in time in a different place and period because I think it can equally be as revealing as the work of Juvenile at this point in time. Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head there. Satire will always have a place, has a place in today's society, had a place in Roman society. I'm glad you enjoyed hearing me rattle on about Juvenile so much, Paul. <laughs> I would hardly call it rattling on, my friend. <laughs> it, it was an excellent choice and i was very excited to do this today and uh, cheers all around my friend the yes. top of the class top of the class and Thank we'll you. be back right after a word from anna Dobody. this is the ad history podcast keep up with the show and join the discussion by following ad history on twitter with the handle at ad history pc and the hashtag ad history check us out over on facebook instagram and youtube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. Now, for our middle segment, is the is our usual Patreon segment, where if you donate to the AD History Podcast on the $5 tier or higher and join Odo's ADified army, you can submit a special question for Patrick and I, which we will choose at random to answer in these middle episodes. It can be about anything we've covered, anything that falls within the epoch the show is designed to cover, or having to do with Patrick and ourselves in our professional lives. It's entirely up to you. That is all considered in bounds. But today we were doing something slightly different. And this comes from a user on YouTube that goes by the username Sapien. And I don't know if Sapien, in fact, has been there since day one when we first dropped episode one, but it certainly feels like it because Sapien is always contributing. They always have something really excellent to say. And one thing is undeniable, guys. Whether you're leaving a comment on, say, YouTube or on one of our social media pages, or, for example, if you're leaving a review on, say, something like Apple Podcasts, we read it. We appreciate it. We like it. Believe me, if you write it and submit it, we end up reading it. And hopefully it's all for the good. And, of course, we always encourage you to leave a glowing five-star rating and review on something like Apple Podcasts or leave a like, comment, or even subscribe if you're there out on YouTube. 
because it really does help out the show and we cannot emphasize it enough. We cannot do this without you and nor would we want to. Our goal is to give you the 80 history podcast you deserve. And when you join us and you support us in that endeavor, it goes a tremendous way, whether you're donating at the minimum tier or you're leaving five stars on Apple Podcasts, all of it counts and we appreciate it all. It, none of it goes outside of our attention, does it, Patrick? No, you're quite right, Paul. Uh, any sort of long-term support like that, whether it's just watching or listening, of course, I would say, commenting like this, like Sapien does, it's just very reassuring, unconditional support, it feels like sometimes. It's good to know that there are people who enjoy the podcast enough to support us in those ways. Yes, absolutely. And, and hopefully we'll never have to test the premise of unconditional. And that's that's part of us giving you the AD history podcast you deserve. And so in our, not our past episode, but the one before it, Sapien left a very interesting suggestion, which, and I quote Sapien here, what do you think about, in a nutshell, human era? Care to cover it? Close quote. And the second I saw that, I went and I looked at it. And I've been watching that channel just like so many others now for years. But for whatever reason, I missed this particular idea. And it's a very interesting one. I must say, I, I was very keen to cover this at Sapien's suggestion. It, it's, it's provocative, if nothing for the exploration of the ideas that it purports. But we're going to get that a bit more deeply. So. What is it exactly that Sapien is referring to? So this particular YouTube channel is obviously extremely popular and they do excellent work. The way in a nutshell posits this, their feeling is that in the present, the current structure in terms of what we consider to be the modern epoch based on the growth and development of human civilization as a whole is now outdated. Their idea that at the time when they released this, which was late 2016, that most of the world in terms of the internationally accepted calendar see themselves for our purposes now, let's say, in 2020. And of course, if you are listening to the AD History podcast, you're familiar with the origins of this particular epoch and how we are exactly in the year 2020 and the history of how that came to be. What they're purporting is that they feel that it is no longer a accurate representation of where we are as a species. Since we have not detected any sort of what we consider to be intelligent extraterrestrial life, albeit our search being quite narrow and incomplete at this point in the size of the universe, that we're the first species we're aware of to evolve and develop where we have effectively taken control of an entire planet. And we're not going to get into the Kardashev scale or anything like that, type one civilization. That's not what we're talking about here. But for all intents and purposes, we are the dominant species and we have developed technologically and we become, for the most part, outside of Mother Nature itself, the, the strong arm of this planet and its current history. And that the idea that we're looking at ourselves in 2020 does not necessarily accurately or or productively represent human history as a whole and that it should start with a new calendar what they call a year zero if we're going by the german jahr null <laughs> that it is time to overhaul this and 
they start, as I recall, on a point in time that's about, for them, they consider about 12,000 years ago, when we first begin seeing us go from a hunter-gatherer species to beginning to put down the roots of civilization. And one of those factors that is so closely linked to the rise of formal civilization as we would understand it has to do with the advent and understanding and production of agriculture. So yes, and one of the other factors they include in their video of this defining moment was around that time, an ancient temple. What remains of an ancient temple had been found, this huge thing. We have no idea how these such ancient people made such a grand temple, about six meters in size, in height, and like 40 tons in weight or so. It far precedes, I think it's like 7,000 years before even the pyramids. And that was one of the main facts that that humans this far back can make something so monumental. That's one of the key factors, their idea of the start of the human era, as they call it. So basically, their thinking is thus, that to represent this, that it would be far, far more beneficial to have it be that we are currently in the year 1220 as opposed to 2020, beginning with that marker of demarcation that Patrick and I just described. And it's interesting because, at least for me, Patrick, I don't really see this necessarily as an agree or disagree moment. For me, I think the merits of this discussion in regards to our show have a lot more to do with how the calendar, and this was certainly one of the main tenets in their video, have to do with how we view the rise and development of the human race as a whole. That when you begin putting markers in time, and they're not suggesting, for, for example, changing the Gregorian calendar. They're just talking about the years themselves. So for all intents and purposes, they're proposing a 12,000-year calendar. And this is interesting because when you start putting down markers in time, there's no question that it most definitely influences your thinking about what happens during that epoch and the epoch that you are in or studying, like in our case, the Anno Domini epoch. And what comes before that? Here's a great example. Think about when the pyramids were built. The pyramids were built, what, 3,000, what we consider to be about 3,000 BC. Is that correct? I believe so, yeah. And so the idea, when you think about that, it it makes it seem so much more distant. And in some ways, uh, intellectually and psychologically, there's there's almost this odd disconnection of continuity of the past and, and our history of it and how we think about it. And so for them, they they want to propose a calendar that encompasses the entirety of us from the rise of civilization itself, that, that beginning of the use of agriculture and, and the story it tells to where we are today in our HD world, to be sure. And, and I'm curious what your thoughts here are on this, Patrick, because there's no doubt if you were to just stop and think about it and go on that 12,000-year scale, it does seem to have a a psychological effect which creates a greater continuity of how we think about the past. At least it does to me. It really does, especially for our show here, AD History. You're talking about the pyramids and ancient Egypt and the pyramids is an amazing time in human history, in the human era. However, we aren't going to talk about it because... Someone in the past decided that that's a different era, and that you know, because 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 we dedicated ourselves to AD, 
Yes, absolutely. And, and it makes weird. sense. You know, it, it makes that's sense. What, yeah. It's ours, you know, it's what we live in. Exactly. But like, w w fundamentally, that that time in history becoming the time, the ADBC sort of thing, it is a very odd thing that's based on. It's based around the birth of Jesus. And especially to be so universally recognized, especially in places where Christianity isn't the key religion. It is strange that it is just odd that we have chose this point and we all stick to it and don't really question it. And the moment you do start to question it, like uh, Kurzgesagt have done here, and uh, just it, it's worth mentioning that this wasn't their theory. There was a specific uh, scientist or historian, anthropologist, who came up with this hypothesis of the human era. Once you, you question it, once they question it, it does make you go, hmm, that's a very good point. So it's interesting how we even got to this point because you figure one of the main reasons why we have this internationally accepted calendar is in many respects, one of the reasons why uh, today in the modern era that English has become, say, the lingua franca. So there's a lot of factors that go into deciding what the dating system is, what is the calendar, what's the most useful spoken international language that have absolutely nothing to do with history. The greatest and most influential political bodies and, and states on the planet who have been put in a position where now Western Europe and North America, of course, have have very much dominated so many so much of world events for so long now that something like the Anno Domini epoch that is our show as a calendar would end up getting spread around the world and simply become the norm, even though there have been so many other calendars and, and dating systems specifically that have existed well outside of this. This happens to be ours, and since we've been you know, the, the big kid on the block for so long and have been largely responsible for creating the international system in which we function, we get to make the call. But th this, it's certainly not, AD is certainly not the, the be-all, end-all. It simply was the case for us. And once we became the big kids on the block, you create largely responsible for creating our current international system we effectively get to make the call and everybody runs with it. The system is so sort of Christian, Western-centric. You know, it's ADR, anadonomy, it's after the birth of Jesus. And one of the arguments they make for the human era is that it factors in more around the world, more human achievement from around the world. Like we mentioned, it starts with that building of the temple, which I believe was somewhere on the Fertile Crescent, they specify. I can't remember exactly. I think it was Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, yeah. And it just shows it, it, it gives more care to everywhere, really. I, I would say I'm a hundred percent on board for changing to the human era because, especially for us, it'll give us a lot more work pool. Oh, goodness, it would make a great deal more work. You know, for me, it's not really a matter of looking at this as a proposition for <laughs> effective international change because, from a functional standpoint, our calendar on a day to day basis for most people, wherever you are, works well enough. We're all operating on, on the same standards. We're counting time in the same way. And this is something that is absolutely vital and an indispensable quality. It cannot be divorced from the reality of the HD world that we're living in, Patrick. When you start looking at the calendar and how we mark time and how we use our dating system, it's absolutely fundamental to the concept of what we consider to be the HD world. Could not agree more, Paul. It's just it, it's, it's how we understand things, and it does take quite a lot to think in a different way. And so, necessarily, you know, when I'm looking at this, I'm not thinking about it as 
oh, well, you know, let's let's overhaul the whole international system because for the purposes of utility and functionality, the important part is that we're all working on the same page at this point. I don't think most people really give it that much thought in, in the practicalities of their life and doing business and living out their lives. But from our perspective, for a show that is based on covering an entire epoch decade by decade, no less, and from a philosophical perspective in regards to a philosophy of history, I do think it's very provocative because it does really change how you perceive things. One of the things I do like about it is that it gives you a, a wider context for how our species as a whole, and we're all the same species, how we've come together on a, on a collective amalgamated basis, which has the ability to be very useful. Now, I would be remiss not to point out and be just a wee bit cynical that, of course, at the end of this video, <laughs> they also then proceed to say, and for sale in our merch store, you can buy one of these calendars that we made with all your favorite Kurskazat animations that you've come to know and love. That's me being a little salty. Believe me, as creators, Patrick, we can respect the fact <laughs> that you always need to find new and creative ways to be able to support your work and make a living. Yeah. Gotta make that bread. <laughs> yeah, undeniably, you have to put food on the table. And the fact of the matter is they, just like us, are professionals as part of their job and they're finding new and interesting ways of doing it. Mm. But I always do get a little bit salty at the end of, and you can buy XYZ at the end of something like that. So you have to put it in there because I do think it's relative, but yeah. let, let's put that aside. I, I just wanted to mention that. So yeah, when you stop and you realize that it, it, it does actually make you think about the human race in a more complete perspective, that does have definite historical benefits in terms of how we all view us as a species and working as a species, because as the world invariably becomes more interconnected, which is in incredible to think, it is also potentially quite useful so that we are not necessarily looking at it necessarily as the past and histories of particular peoples, but looking at it as from the perspective of a joined species, all humans living on the same planet, sharing effectively the same greater fate as a species. And that's kind of a powerful thing. But from the historical perspective, there is definite benefit to it simply because it gives you a new way of looking at our history as a species because something that that happens in scholarship a lot and this is not specifically to do with the calendar but it has to do with how topics and subjects are demarcated that for example you could take a place like say russia and you could be a modern european history scholar and your understanding of russian history will effectively then stop at the urals and then somebody else who is interested in Central or East Asian history will pick up Russia from their point of view. And it, it tends to cut us off intellectually in a kind of a strange way. Now, granted, we need to have boundaries in terms of what it is we're studying so that we have uh, some expectation of limitation because we can't know it all. Some subjects are just too big. That's why historians specialize in things. Remember, guys, just because you're running into somebody that's a historian or presenters like us regarding history doesn't mean we're a Rolodex. <laughs> you know, we have our specializations, the things that we really know about and have excelled in. But it's the same kind of idea at play, Patrick. And while I'm not 
advocating a change because like I said, there's a there's a certain utility and functionality to just working the way things are right now that we're all on the same page in terms of how we're able to relate from an intellectual philosophy of history point of view, they make a very compelling case. Yeah, it, it is definitely an interesting case, but I do think it is just a case. I think if someone said to me, like, do you want to take one? I would I said it's not up for debate, but I think it's going to be a lot harder to actually implement a new calendar across the world. It probably would just be easy to keep the one we have. <laughs> exactly. It goes under the category if it isn't broken, don't fix it. Exactly, yeah. Luckily, we're not in, in that position no. where we're a, a number of very large international bodies that would be considering this sort of thing. <laughs> so really, it's not it's really not such a, ma- such a matter of agree or disagree because you have to look at on those two very different bases, which have very different goals. But for AD, you know, we're we know that we're working within this very specific, albeit quite large for the within the context of a podcast period. But there is something moving in a number of ways about what they what they are proposing. And I think if it does anything at all, I like how it how it enters and posits it in the discussion, because I I think it is a productive way of looking at things, especially if you are looking at it from the history in the case, our case, which is world history. It does kind of create a more a full scope rounded picture of things which is actually pretty cool it is pretty cool no definitely it does sort of give you more idea of how far we've come in what time we've come because that said like there isn't much that defines the start of ad minus the birth of jesus if you do define it more if you do define it more as when humans started farming and building more impressively stopped being hunter gatherers that does encompass more simply but it encompasses things like the pyramids it encompasses the start of the roman empire you know we've started this story midway through like obviously rome's been so central to ad history as of now and we start we we, we joined the story midway through it does seem odd when you think of it like that and there is so much in bc we missed so if you're listening to this right now we're curious what your thoughts are if you're on youtube leave some comments what do you think about this what what do you what are your feelings on this human period calendar that we actually, in fact, according to the argument it makes, we're living in the year 12,020. And like I said, this is not so much a matter of we should implement it, but I'm curious how it has changed based on what you know, and we'll leave a link to their video on, on YouTube so you can go and see it for yourself if you haven't seen it. But we want to hear your thoughts on this because it's, it's quite provocative. This is not a debate of whether there should be a change or not, because there's an obvious utility to us all being on the same page, but, nor is it a question of eliminating any sort of system. But we're curious what your feelings are on its effect on you, potentially, in terms of how you think about the history of the human race. And we're very curious to read them. So by all means, if you have thoughts, Put them down because we want to read them and really adds to the discussion. And I just want to say that starting soon, you can buy your very own AD history calendar based on the Gregorian <laughs> calendar coming soon. 2021. I, I will be first in line. And we want to thank Sapien for, for leaving this suggestion. We always really appreciate their contributions. And we know we know you are one of our truly dedicated listeners. And we want to thank you for this because... 
it wouldn't have come to our attention had you not. And that's a fascinating, great contribution. And in our next episode, we're going to get back to the Patreon submitted questions, which once again, you can submit that we will randomly choose if you donate on the $5 tier or higher, because like we said, it helps more than we can possibly express in the here and now. And if you love 80 history and you want to help out the show, but you're not able to donate, please leave a glowing five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy podcasts most, so long as you can do so. And if you're on YouTube, please like, share, subscribe, share these episodes with your friends. If you love 80 history, you know someone else is a history buff, let them know about it. Everybody is invited. 80 history is for everyone. And we appreciate all of you here. We couldn't do it without you. And the fact of the matter is, guys, you are the ones that make it worthwhile. It's not cliche. It's absolutely the truth. It's a very warm and gratifying feeling that there is no comparison to. Patrick, you know this well after doing this for years on Name Explain. Yes, I do. And it is great to have uh, that sort of feedback coming back for AD history as well. Absolutely. And so once again, thank you to Sapien. And we'll be back right after a word from AD herself. This is the AD History Podcast. Now, Paul, you have a topic somewhat similar to mine in regards that you're not talking about specific events that happened in this time period, but more an ongoing theme that was happening at this time period. And it's going to be a really interesting discussion, that's for sure. Well, I I certainly hope so, Patrick. So in our last episode, naturally, if you heard our last episode, when we were talking to Sam Aronow, we were discussing in some brief the concept of the five good emperors and how it's just become this somewhat assumed knowledge that's really just kind of passed around in historical parlance. But if we learned anything from that episode, you realize that what could be considered a good emperor in this case is highly subjective. In fact, the term good in and of itself is highly subjective. And so what I wanted to do today, because I think this is something that really kind of needs to be nipped in the bud so we can really understand exactly the origins of this concept and try to think about it a little bit more critically and try to explore exactly the ideas that were being conveyed when this became popularized and the figures who popularized it where and how and i mean after last time patrick i can't imagine that we would choose to do you know choose to do anything else it seems like a unnecessary undertaking but certainly i hope an enjoyable one it really does seem necessary like uh, we'd all uh, so in our minds just accepted that these guys were the five good emperors we've been saying it quite a few times in this podcast it was only after the last episode when sam was talking to us about some of hadrian's not so good actions that really made us well it made me anyway then it made you Paul, but made me sort of think oh maybe maybe we should think more about why we call these people good yeah absolutely and and it certainly warrants this discussion so let's let's try to uncover some truths and and some facts about the concept of the five good emperors and of course, in the course of studying Roman history, there are a few concepts that are more widely accepted than that. But why? What made them so-called good? Why were they any good? Did the Romans themselves find them good? Why do we so passively accept the pantheon of these rulers of Rome to stand above the rest? And where does this whole idea begin? In fact, it actually begins roughly 1,300 to 1,400 years after the fact in the early Renaissance Italy, 
with one Niccolo Machiavelli. And I'm sure, Patrick, you are familiar with Machiavelli. Yes, the name definitely rings a bell. Yes, and most times when most people hear it, for what I believe you called uh, an adjective pronoun? Something along those lines, along the same sort of terms of Orwellian and Dickensian. Well, that's exactly the type of thing we're talking about Mm. here, because the term we're talking about is Machiavellian. For those who don't know, Machiavellian is basically a descriptor of a a set of tactics within the context of politics that are particularly underhanded, sometimes cruel, certainly untruthful, and just from a moral context of what we consider generally to be good in the present, something that is is not exactly all that flattering in its actions. And you'll hear the term tossed around quite a bit, but the the origin of this is not simply just Machiavelli, Niccolo Machiavelli. A lot of this stems from his famous treatise, The Prince. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Niccolo Machiavelli was a career lifetime administrator for the city-state of Florence, largely in the late 15th and early 16th centuries. For the most part, he was definitely a committed patriot to uh, the home he called Florence. He definitely had some Republican streaks in him, to be sure. And, And when we say Republican, the general accepted parlance and, and language means that it is a, a governmental body that does not have direct rule monarchy or mon- monarchy at all. So one of the big differences, of course, between your country and my country, Patrick, mm-hmm. is while they're both definite forms of lowercase l liberal democracies, yours is a constitutional monarchy in the Westminster fashion, of course, mm-hmm. whereas in the case of the United States, we are a democratic republic. And one of the big differences there, of course, is that in your country, the head of state is, at present, Elizabeth II, the queen, mm. and your head of government is the prime minister. And in my case, with the United States, both head of state and head of government are the president of the United States, the head of the executive branch, as mm. outlined by the U.S. Constitution. So he generally was not a huge fan of that. And so he was this lifetime administrator, and even even before the Medici showed up, it was still his life and his experiences working in that position in Florence at the time very much molded him and his view of how politics worked in his career and his experience. So in the early 16th century, the Papal States, in fact, invaded Florence, and they went and put the aforementioned Medici in charge, basically kind of as benevolent autocrats that will end up ruling quite favorably on their behalf. In fact, the pope that would succeed the one that led the invasion of Florence, Pope Leo XII, was a member of the Medici family. So if I remember correctly, the Medici even uh, turned out a few popes, which is an interesting thing to say the least. Yeah, and that in this in this case, it was Pope Leo X. He's, he's the one that was presiding when the Protestant Reformation occurred, the one that has historically taken a great deal of heat for the whole selling of indulgences, one of the things that really set off Martin Luther, to say the least. And for those who are not familiar, indulgences effectively are get-out-of-hell-free get cards. You bought one, and it basically absolved you. Uh, Martin Luther is, uh, I, I think that's one of those fascinating eras of history, the Reformation. This is just me 
it's going on a bit of a tangent, but I'm so looking forward to getting to talk about that way more in depth because it's one of my favourite parts of history. I'm not even a particularly religious person myself, but I just find what Martin Luther did for the church and like saying Pope Leo, just so fascinating. And his gets out of hell free cards are just very interesting times. Looking forward to talking about those in more detail. Oh, absolutely. You, you can appreciate and, and find Martin Luther fascinating without having any particular religious disposition. To be sure, he's just that fascinating in the course of events being what they were. Well, in any case, when the Medici came to power, Machiavelli actually lost his job. They tossed him out. And shortly thereafter, apparently there was, I don't know if it was real or imagined, but there was a conspiracy to overthrow the Medici. And they were compiling a list of potential conspirators. And one of those who ended up falsely on the list, of course, was Machiavelli, even though in reality he had no part in it whatsoever. And so he was duly imprisoned and tortured. And unlike many who undergo that experience who will simply admit their guilt to something they didn't do simply to end the torture, he maintained his innocence and he was eventually released. However, after that, his movements were very controlled, and then eventually he was exiled from Florence, where he had to move to a small state outside of the city that he inherited from his father, and that's ultimately where he did a lot of his writing, and especially The Prince. And so for Machiavelli, without going into the entire treatise of what The Prince is all about, and that was not his only writing, but it's certainly, and, and his writing in general, his, his small canon of writing, is still of interest to scholars today, but The Prince is the one that's best known. That's what we're talking about when we say Machiavellian, where he out outlines in really unequivocal fashion so many various tactics that are necessary for a ruler to not just accumulate power, but how to properly exercise power and what the priorities are. Machiavelli was very much more interested in the ends, the outcome, than the means, how they did it. And that's very much part and parcel to a lot of what exists in that text. So when we look at Machiavelli, we have a pretty good idea of how he viewed politics and what needs to be done. We're not suggesting that he necessarily endorsed these as good things, but what he definitely considered to be good was the security and stability of the state because he believed that was the highest good of the people. Otherwise, anarchy can ensue, and he was in a particularly interesting place and time in Florence in that early, that late 15th, early 16th century, because obviously since the fall of the empire, and at that point it had been over a millennia since it happened, the Italian peninsula had changed a great deal. And he looked at the landscape with as just kind of like this largely lawless and corrupt land of which, you know, he had something of an island in Florence, but even that wasn't always exempt from this sort of thing. So naturally, when he has this view in mind, you can imagine, in addition to the own, his own political dealings when he was coming up, that he would be particularly sensitive to these issues. And generally, his feeling was that you should always judge the ruler by their intentions and their accomplishments and not by their tactics. And so in, I believe it was 1502, this is where we get to the whole idea of where the five good emperors start. This is in his own writing, quote, From the study of this history, we may also learn how a good government is to be established. For while all the emperors who succeeded to the throne by birth, except Titus, 
were bad. All were good who succeeded by adoption. And in this case of the five from Nerva to Marcus, but as soon as the empire fell once more to the heirs by birth, its ruin recommenced. Titus, Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius, and Marcus had no need of praetorian cohorts or of countless legions to guard them, but were defended by their own good lives, the goodwill of their subjects, and the attachment of the Senate. Close quote. Now, this is very interesting, Patrick, because he's telling you right off the bat why he, can, why he thought they were as good as they were. And as far as I know, this is the most uh, of it that he mentioned. This is where kind of this concept originates. And what's interesting here, Patrick, is what is, what is he telling us? Why is he saying that these these five are so good? So I was just, I don't know if you saw, I was just, just take some notes there. And Machiavelli clearly wasn't a fan of hereditaryness. I think that's the word for it. You know, yes, Florence was a city-state with no sort of royalty. And he's saying that these five were so good was because they didn't inherit the empire. They were adopted into it. And he's saying that because of that, that's why they were good. The the term that came to mind to me when you were reading that quote is confirmation bias. So Machiavelli, as I said, wasn't a fan of uh, inheriting estates, estates, uh, empires, land, whatever you want to call it, inheriting rule. And he found something from history that proved why inheriting rule was bad and just shared that with the world, if that makes any sort of sense. It does. He, his feelings were that ultimately, if you are inheriting, inheriting rule where the, the only means of your legitimacy is as a biological heir, as an offspring to the current ruler, that essentially you're far more likely to run into trouble. Because just because you're the biological offspring of a current ruler who may actually be very good at their job is no guarantee that their offspring will be nearly as capable or even interested for that matter. I mean, goodness. I mean, if, if you've watched any of the Netflix of The Crown, you can see, and granted the context is a little different there because Britain had been a well-established democracy up to that point, but all the same, you can see how that is an incredible obligation and responsibility to be born with and to have to accept. You're not even necessarily doing it by choice, but you're doing it out of obligation. And everybody who has that obligation is not always going to be so talented. I often sort of think about what if I was born into one of those sort of families that had a family-run like job? Because obviously it's not just rural family, like farming, it's very much that sort of tradition, like the children become farmers. You get these sort of lines of work where it's in the family. And I often think, thank God I'm not part of that. Not that I, I dislike what my parents do by any means. Um, I just always found like, thank God I have that ability to choose what I want to do. I'm not, my, my fate is mine to choose. I'm not stuck in something. So yeah, I, I don't like the idea of being stuck as, as being a farmer. I don't think I'd like the idea of having to be emperor just because of who my parents were. That's my own opinion on it anyway. Well, no, and that makes plenty of sense. And I mean, one of the wonderful things that is often the case in the modern era, our modern world, is that if you're born into at least decent circumstances, for the most part, 
you have the ability to follow your ambitions and passions and, and hopefully turn that into a profession that can support your livelihood and whatever kind of lifestyle you wish to live. Whereas in the case of divine right hereditary rule or any sort of hereditary rule from a biological offspring, it was something else entirely. Now, in the Roman world, when you are adopted, it didn't matter that you weren't actual biological kin. Under Roman law and within Roman custom, you're treated no differently. And so when it came when it comes to Machiavelli and his insights on the matter and understanding this as he did, he saw two real benefits. One is, of course, that this meant that you could adopt somebody who is far more suited to the job than they would if they had a biological offspring who would be in line. And on top of that, especially after you look at so much of the chaos that ensued due to a lack of a, of a more streamlined and formal mechanism of succession in the first century, that it started all sorts of terrible conflicts, really just right about from the death of Julius Caesar until roughly the ascension of Nerva, who was all told actually quite benign, but we'll use Trajan. In the case of Machiavelli, he definitely demarcates the assassination of Domitian. And so it basically, by appointing that successor, especially if you do it with some foresight before you're in actual physical peril and getting ready to die, you can also circumvent those who may be plotting to take power themselves. And that's a really big deal. In terms of really, I mean, they didn't permanently figure it out, obviously, but they definitely put their finger in the proverbial dike, as it were, and it made a hell of a lot of difference, did it not? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, uh, yeah, definitely. A lot of what Machiavelli is talking mm. about there are those two issues. And, you know, for the most part, they were capable administrators. I don't necessarily know that I would include Nerva because, honestly, mm. at least within my research, he really comes off as quite benign. The best part about him is that the, uh, the Senate appointed him in consensus almost as soon as Domitian was dead, and that there wasn't this huge struggle. Now, let's look at the other side of the coin of this, Patrick. Let's look at in the case of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, starting with Julius Caesar. Obviously, in the case of Julius Caesar, it basically tipped off a, a pair of major civil wars, one that had to do with those who sided with later Augustus, but at the time Octavian, to fight and defeat the conspirators who killed Julius Caesar. Then, of course, you had the civil war that was the second triumvirate. Mm -hmm, mm. And then, of course, naturally, Augustus comes out on top after winning out, and he rules for the better part over five decades. Mm. And his rule, obviously, is controversial in a lot of respects, because while he certainly, in those five decades put a great deal of stability under his rule. There was no fighting or jockeying for succession. It was also very much, if not officially, but de facto becoming the empire where you had secretive one-man rule, where you couldn't call it that. He did it through the guise of Roman republicanism and just built up this concept of the principate as a whole bunch of bundled unique powers that were very difficult to pass on. And for the most part, it was initially his desire 
to pass it on to one of his grandchildren, both of which died. And this was something that happened a lot for the first choice of heirs in the Julio-Claudian dynasty, is the ones they really wanted ended up dying, and they ended up going with other choices. But then you obviously had Tiberius, who was his own story, and if you listen to AD history, you know more than enough about that. And then, of course, you get Caligula, also known as Gaius, depending on the, the research that you're taking up, followed by Claudius, and then you had Nero. And you're beginning to see why, it's certainly from Machiavelli's point of view, the problems that come with this largely hereditary biological passing on of things, and that so much of the trouble was from that alone. Then, of course, once you get to something like the Flavians, where you have Vespasian, Vespasian did a credible job. Uh, Titus, even though he didn't rule that long, is is somebody who seems to be relatively well-spoken of. And then, of course, you get Domitian. So it goes from father to son to brother. And at the end of that, you get an absolute nightmare. And so for Machiavelli, it starts at this point at the death of Domitian. And if you're looking at it from his perspective, Patrick, in terms of what he considers why the predecessors to the Julio-Claudians and the Flavians were so good was because they were not actual biological heirs that were being groomed for the role. Those who were emperor would choose those on, on something that would approach merit in the Roman world that were best suited for this. Now, granted, there was all sorts of politics involved in terms of who got it, but certainly they were more capable administrators and had a great deal more stability in this case, yes? Yeah, it makes it, it makes all the sense in the world to hire, to, to hire, that's the or bad way to put it, to give someone the position who is good at it, not just because of their biology. It, that, that makes all the sense in the world. Like, this really shouldn't be a debated thing. Like, traits like that aren't passed on in biology fundamentally, you know, like, just because... Just because your parents are one thing doesn't mean you're going to be that exact same thing. It's just, it's kind of obvious stuff. <laughs> it would seem so, but just because it would seem obvious to us in the present doesn't mean it wasn't exercised like hell. Oh, I mean, oh, you no, go course, through yeah. the Middle Ages and, and varieties of kingdoms all over the world. We'll, we'll use medieval Europe, for example. The concept of divine right rule. They weren't saying simply just because you know, you're the biological offspring of this ruling family, that they derived their right to rule directly from God. And so they kept doing and finding justification for it, even if it wasn't in the best interest of the people or their state. It does feel like sometimes uh, after, the, after the Roman Empire's fall, we take a bit of a step back, hence why it's called the Dark Ages. But we'll talk about that when we get to it. It's dark for many reasons, and some people don't even necessarily think it was as dark as it was, but that's a different story for a much different time. Isn't there also a conspiracy theory that the Middle Ages didn't exist? <laughs> it's not something that I have heard before. Uh, I, think it's some, I, think, I, I think it's some sort of conspiracy theory, but we, we don't talk about conspiracy theories here. It's just No, yeah. not, not unless, they have, unless they have a definitive historic impact within the events that we're talking about, to be sure. I don't need to entertain that. Let's deal with facts, not theories. <laughs> so naturally... If we think we've learned the lesson, most certainly that's not always been the case. And of course, today, while there are modern politi familial political dynasties, you still have to largely get voted into power or be appointed by somebody that was elected. To a certain extent, we, we do share some thoughts in modernity with Machiavelli, but it's very different from how the Romans would have been handling it 
in this situation. For Machiavelli, good was not always, and was often not, especially when you're talking about politics, a matter of morality. It was a matter of outcome. So how would, for example, we got into some depth into terms of how Hadrian dealt with the Bar Kokhba revolt and, and the end of the Kidos War in our previous episode. And when it came to the Bar Kokhba revolt, and which at the end of it, we're talking about upward of a million Jews that had been killed. You have to ask yourself, well, how can that be any good? Because it doesn't sound very good as, as we would understand it, to be sure, right? No, exactly. And that's, what, that's one of these things when we hear the word good, more often than not, we, we, we link the word good with being morally good. Like if someone said to you, oh, you're a good person, or oh, they're a good person. Oh, I know Paul, he's good. You'd think it means sort of things like kind. We also link goodness with kindness or gentle and fairness, not attempting to eradicate entire races of people. That's not a good thing, at least by our modern ears anyway, that's for sure. Well, I think it would be far too great a step to try to infer what Machiavelli would have thought about Hadrian's actions in that particular instance. What we do know about him, however, as we've talked about before, is that when it comes to the good in terms of being the good prince, that the priority, of course, is the stability and security of the state. So it's not implausible to extrapolate. He could have viewed, though I'd not seen any evidence of this, but just going off of his very famous treatise, that Machiavelli might have viewed it as simply what Hadrian needed to do in order to guarantee the security of his empire by going and putting down a internal revolt and rebellion. But certainly, that's nothing that at present we would consider as part of the legacy of what has become called the five good emperors, mm. right? No, definitely not. And just interesting that you've got a quote coming up here from uh, Edward Gibbon. Oh, and yeah, I, we're getting to him in a moment. I came across this quote, and I've, I've got some things to say about it, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to get to this one, yeah. too. So that, that's largely Machiavelli's contribution to this. So we go to about almost 300 years later, and an Englishman by the name of Edward Gibbon. And Edward Gibbon was a, a relatively high-born member of British society who got, you know, all the education and, and kind of the, the kind of stuff that you would expect for somebody that walked around with people that had peerages and was, in fact, himself a member of parliament. And he was most famous for his multi-volume work, The History of the Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, for which he received tremendous acclaim, and he was writing this towards the end of the 18th century. And in doing so, he certainly made a great deal of money from his work at the time, and he looked back on this. And Gibbon is, is not nearly as colorful, I would say, a, a figure as Machiavelli was. You know, nobody is calling it Gibbonism or something like that. I've not seen anything to suggest that. But he actually ends up picking up this baton of the five good emperors himself. But listen closely to his quote as to why he thought this was the case. Quote, If a man were called to fix the period in the history of the world during which the condition of the human race was most happy and prosperous, he would, 
without hesitation, <laughs> name that which elapsed from the death of Domitian to the accession of Commodus. The vast extent of the Roman Empire was governed by absolute power, under the guidance of virtue and wisdom. The armies were restrained by the firm but gentle hand of four successive emperors, whose character and authority commanded respect. The forms of the civil administration were carefully preserved by Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, and the Antonines, who delighted in the image of liberty and were pleased with considering themselves as the accountable ministers of the laws. Such princes deserved the honor of restoring the republic had the Romans of their days been capable of enjoying a rational freedom. Close quote. Now, that is very interesting, is it not, my friend? So it is. It is very interesting, and the the part that just um, gets me was that the human race was most happy and prosperous. The human race includes every human, and we know for a fact from our conversation with Sam last time that just not, as one example, just as one tiny example that no not every human was at their most happy and prosperous the jews were definitely not at their most prosperous quite the opposite of that so and deeply unhappy and deep yeah and deeply unhappy so but as you were saying edward gibbon was writing towards the end of the 19th century 1800s is that correct to say that paul the end of the 18th century end so the, the late 17th so i guess you know perhaps uh, unfortunately it might have been just another struggle of the jews to not be recognized even in this period of time i'm sure sam would have a, something to say about how the jews were treated in the 1700 18th century but you know he's not here right now but it doesn't take much to that this wasn't the case just doing a little bit of digging and you see no the human race was not at its most happy and prosperous at this time if we were simply to use the the jews of what obviously became then Palestina or mm. Palestine, that they were neither prosperous nor happy and deeply fractured and, and wounded as a people based on the actions of one of these five emperors. Now, you have to give credit to Antoninus Pius, who basically put an end to all of this once Hadrian died, and, and certainly he was far better in that respect. Mm. But once again, Gibbon, just like Machiavelli, seems far more interested in the ends and outcomes as he understood it. Okay, I don't know to what extent his scholarship regarding, for example, the Bar Kokhba revolt was, mm. considering we have so much trouble in regards to that scholarship today. That is I a mean, true point. For all intents and purposes, he probably would have had access to the writings of Josephus at that point because they had survived, were already you know, several hundred years into the printing press, it's something that could have been available to him and somebody in his position. But once again, he's far more interested in the ends and not the means, because the means, as we have seen, are not nearly as important or material as to the outcome or intent of a particular ruler. So now when you start looking at it, you realize, okay, this concept of the five good emperors is really a, a, a two-parter in terms of its creation. The, the initial concept is coming out of Machiavelli, and about 300 years later, Gibbon is picking up and adding to it. But what I find fascinating is while they do share 
in, it seems at least, in the concept of the ends justifying the means, they do not point out the exact same reasons for why they were the five good emperors. He mentions nothing about the cycle of adoption in this case in regards to it improving the quality of the rulers. He's simply saying in his view from that point in time, literally coming 16 or 1700 years later, that, oh, well, you know, from my perspective, based on what I know and, and what I consider to be happy and prosperous, that you have to give these five the credit. So they're not even necessarily agreeing on the same tenets for what made them good. And largely these two, especially with the overwhelming popularity of both texts, it is not at all surprising that this idea of the five good emperors would have fallen into such accepted and commonly distributed historical parlance. I could, it's very easy to see when you begin looking at it further how this sort of thing could have perpetuated. 100%. And as you're saying, they're good because of their end result. And that's such a single track way of looking at things. If we only look at the end results of things, then like a lot of emperors, a lot of rulers might seem good. But if you look at the means of how they got there, you might see, oh, no, they're only being seen as good for one specific reason. And likewise, as other em emperors and rulers, we can see as being, they were good at one thing, that's for sure. But that doesn't mean they were good people all around. And I just it's absolutely fascinating that just just this such ingrained part of our language. You know, most people talk about the Roman Empire go, and then we had the good five emperors and don't even think about it. And they weren't even called the good emperors in their lifetime with only Machiavelli. Exactly. Yes, over a thousand years later. And as Sam told us about last time, Hadrian wasn't the best liked person in Rome during his reign. No, he definitely had some issues with the Senate. And honestly, and this is this is truly just just my own reading between the lines. It's hard for me to imagine that, you know, for all intents and purposes, that even though it had become much more popular and accepted by the time of Hadrian's rule, sometimes you have to kind of wonder if his, uh, his Greek fetish, as you called it, <laughs> didn't necessarily rub some of those that were in the Senate the wrong way. And that, like, for example, in the case of Nero, Nero also had a similar but not as extensive fascination with Greece. And as far as the Senate was concerned at the time, which both then and in the case of Hadrian were far compromised from their time and role in the Republic, you have to imagine that in both cases, even though one was less extreme than another, it had to rub some of them the wrong way, asking themselves, well, whose interest are you most you know, concerned with? Are you most interested with the concerns of Rome and, and the Roman people, or or this, you know, although, albeit still very important and influential, especially from a cultural perspective, this Greek outpost. You know, whose side are you on? Mm, definitely. And apologies, this is somewhat of a dumb question, but how was was Greece ruled by, was Greece a hereditary ruled place in its ancient time, or was it more sort of elected? It was elected, wasn't it? Well, it depend on, depends on the city-state city state, question. Of course, yeah. You know, obviously, the in the case of in the case of Athens at its height, they did have a democracy. Yeah, of course. I mean, like is. one of the places you, you can see it, yeah, lay out in its one of its more demonstrative fashions. Of course, is Plato's The Apology, where he talks about Socrates' defense before the Athenian Assembly. 
So from what I understand, it very much depended on where they came from, the period of time, because Greece just has such a stretch of of history and in the various city-states that encompass that ancient part of what we consider to be ancient Greece, that it, that it varied. But by this time, uh, and, and certainly under the time of Hadrian, it, it was a formal province of the empire, mm. to be sure. And so something that we kind of have to, to stop and, and make mention of and qualify this, because it's important, because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. This is where we're talking about when it comes to history and understanding it in context, mm. where in our case, what we consider good in the present is going to be very different than what it may have been a thousand years ago. And in the case of Machiavelli, looking back, what he considered to be good, it may not necessarily have been what the Romans considered good at the time. And so it kind of really is this snowballing effect where, for the most part, obviously there was no great civil disturbance and many parts of the empire, it was generally peaceful and, and relatively prosperous, but depending on where you were in the empire depends very much on how you felt about it at the time. And so Machiavelli, 1400 years later, basically creating this concept of the five good emperors, then gets expounded to when Gibbon receives this particular idea adds to it to what he considers to be five good emperors. And then we get to the present, and when we hear five good emperors, we're already just entirely way down the mountain, and, and the whole thing is is lost. And this is a, a pretty good example of how this can really take off on you. And something I thought of interest is Machiavelli and Edward Gibbons both had the full picture they could define these guys because it could be argued. I mean, like quite literally geographically, um, Rome was at its peak, at its biggest under the good five good emperors. This was very much if you were to like chart Rome's quality, it could be seen as this is the peak. It all did go somewhat downhill uh, after these guys, but they had the full picture on their side. Say, yeah, this was the good bit. You you can only really tell when something was good once it's done, and these guys had. They could see the whole picture, they had foresight on their side. They could see this was the good moment where the Romans at the time living under the good emperors, they obviously, as we mentioned, Hadrian wasn't as light at the time and they might have thought someone better was going to come along if if that makes any sort of sense. Well, they had hindsight, not foresight. Hindsight, that's the word I'm looking for. They had hindsight. Yes, and, and in, the case of, in the case of hindsight, well, they, well, to be fair, they didn't have, or at least it doesn't seem that they necessarily had the full picture, but they had what they thought was perhaps mm. the full picture, to be sure. And so, yes, your point is entirely accurate and is very much one of the reasons why this ends up in the ground rules. So I, I find it utterly, utterly fascinating how, how this ultimately plays out. And you know, let's you know, look at these five good emperors. So really the best thing that Nerva did was that he was brought to the position of emperor in consensus by the Senate, and it was done peacefully. He didn't rock the boat, and that he adopted Trajan. Trajan, obviously, certainly did have his faults. He expanded the empire well beyond its ability to actually sustain, though he was largely a vast improvement as the effective successor, as we like to call it, of Domitian. You know, he certainly was not without fault, but though a great improvement, we know about Hadrian because we've covered him so much. Antoninus Pius was certainly one of the more interesting rulers because he he did genuinely have 
a selflessness. He was not. He was well known, and and not just because he had the last name Pius attached to it, but he was extremely well known for uh, selfless administration, to his credit. And then naturally, he's succeeded by Marcus Aurelius, who is extremely well held in in the great canon. And then of course, this ends with the accession of Commodus, even though in the case of Marcus Aurelius, even though Commodus was his biological son and successor, they actually ruled for a brief time as co-emperor, but we're going to get to that idea in a later episode. But you can even see, I mean, one of the reasons, of course, why Marcus Aurelius has been has been so venerated in history is, one, has to do with his very well-famous and still widely read today, meditations are you familiar with his meditations uh no i'm not actually it really it's it's a very interesting look into his inner life in terms of it's his writings that have survived i don't know that there's been much by way of interpolation but it, it really outlines his his thoughts and feelings in regards to what being considered in his case a philosopher king though not a king because he's roman Using, using some Plato there as an example, mm. he's very much considered to be part of what's considered a philosopher king. And in his writings, The Meditations, you get a really interesting look into his inner life and, and how he viewed the, the philosophy of Stoicism, in addition to the fact that uh, he was considered to be, Hadrian thought very highly of him. One of the reasons why he accepted Ant, uh, Antoninus Pius as his successor and the reason he adopted him was one of the conditions was that he would adopt Marcus Aurelius as his successor. And so, and on top of that, we can also see another way that Marcus Aurelius has been so venerated in history. All you have to do is sit down and watch Gladiator. Yes. Yeah. And that's something we should do at some point in the future, Paul. <laughs> I think, I don't think there's any avoiding it. So it's interesting how these ideas are perpetuating into the present. And so when somebody in the modern day is faced with the, this concept of the five good emperors, it really couches it in a lot of language that, and, and a lot of values in terms of what is considered good and what is not, that may not necessarily comport to how Romans at the time were thinking about it, how Machiavelli was thinking about it, how Gibbon was thinking about it, and then ultimately we get to the present where it begins to take on its own life and not necessarily be quite all that representative of the contemporaneous reality un under which they lived and ruled. Yes, could have put it better myself. And just something I wanted to sort of wrap up here and talk about a bit more, I think is a part of this we should maybe go into more detail, is mm. this concept of adoption in Rome? Because uh, I think the adoption me and you have of, Rome, of uh, the concept of adoption me and you have, Paul, is quite different to what this kind of adoption was. It wasn't like these emperors were picking out children. A lot of the time, these they were adopting people to a similar age as them. Am I correct in saying that? Oh yeah, the difference in age yeah. between Hadrian and Ant, uh, Antoninus Pius, I, I think, was only a few years. He was his quote unquote father. Mm. It was something of a loophole because the empire did still have to run on heirs and successors. So it was like, well, I can't like I don't want my actual children. If I had actual children, like this guy's my son. It was very. It seemed like very much this was a loophole of how to get who you wanted in power and not have to worry about what your actual biological heir 
would have done on the throne. On it's the, certainly, I, I think I would describe it as a political adaptation mm. based on how the, the concept of adoption just worked in Roman society. So as we were talking a little bit about earlier, when it came to Rome and adopting somebody into your family, let's say as your son, the way the Romans viewed it in law as well as in culture and custom, there was no difference between the one you adopted in and the one that is of direct blood kinship, to be sure. So yeah, it definitely was a way around it without basically up, you know, upheaving all of the foundational sinews that that come with the the succession mechanism. So it's a very fine point you make there. And it's interesting because pun intended, I suppose, it's actually quite a good view of adoption. I think there's still somewhat of a stigma about adoption, but to see that the Romans it didn't care if it was actual blood or not, it was the exact same thing whether they were adopted into the family or born into the family. I think that's quite a cool thing to hear. And one last question I have for you. Did any of these emperors, as far as you know, actually have biological children and were they? Did they have to be explained? Sorry, kid, you ain't getting the throne because I want my adopted son to take the throne. Do you know if anything like that happened? So to answer your question, I believe some of them did. Certainly, Marcus Aurelius did when you were talking about Commodus, but it wasn't the important thing anymore. That, as far as they were concerned, bringing in the adoptive heir to make sure that you could circumvent anybody who was trying to plot for their own power, and also making sure that, for the most part. You know, and there's always that internal wrangling of politics and in, in highest levels of Roman society in terms of who would get adopted. It, it was a political adaptation. And really, we're not talking about this again until Commodus, who is the biological son of Marcus Aurelius. So having kids, not having kids, really the thing that did matter during this Nerva Antonine dynasty, which is kind of a odd way of putting it. Because it's not true dynasty as we understand it, where it truly is a matter of biological offspring. It was an interesting adaptation to get around this without having to upheave the sinews, as it were. So, yeah, you're absolutely correct. In in the case of Machiavelli, his feeling was, you know, the second that Commodus ultimately got his hands on, on full power, that was the end of the show, guys. That's when the decline continued and there was no looking back. It's interesting how this plays out, and if there's anything that I hope that the audience takes from this, is that when it comes to these concepts, it's always good to look into them closer, because what the, the person who started the Five Good Emperors, in the case of Machiavelli, is happening 1,400 years later, and he has a very specific idea of what is good in his view, which if you read The Prince, it's not a matter of morality. In the case of Edward Gibbon, it was certainly his view that this particular area of world and period of time under these rulers was the happiest and the most prosperous, and you get to the modern day in terms of what we consider good, and the whole picture becomes an entire mess. So I really do hope that this was an exploration to think about this a little bit more closely and a bit more critically in terms of the history of this and how it evolved and that it was not the product of one person, and that by the time you get to the present, where you're not dealing with any context anymore. You're, you're, you've lost context, not on one, not two, but three different instances along the way. What do we have? What do we have? I couldn't have put it better myself, Paul. And the last thing I want to say on the matter is to 
is there's, there's one simple question you can ask yourself to start unraveling this concept of the good emperors. You, if someone says you the good emperors, just say yeah, good. At what? And that that's just my sort of you know, just say good at what. That is absolutely one hundred percent the question, Patrick. And I'd like to think that you, I, and our listeners w- would be the first thing out of our mouths. But we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as adhistorypodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching adhistorypodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage, at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.